Beloved, as we continue the theme, which in some sense is present every Lord's Day morning at every worship service of every Bible-believing church, but with a special accent this morning of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, we are first introduced in one way to the great infinite chasm between a holy God and a sinful man back in Genesis chapter 3. And you may be familiar with the story. If you're not, uh, I'm reading it here from Genesis 3 and verse 22, where after Adam and Eve sinned and the judgment of God came into the universe, God said, Genesis 3:22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, And it's an unfinished sentence. Depending upon your translation, you might have a little dash at the end of verse 22. The technical name is is, it's an ellipsis. And one might ask the question, well, did did Moses lose his train of thought? Uh, Was there some kind of scribal error where we lost the text? And the answer is no. This was superintended by the Holy Spirit. This This is an inspired, unfinished sentence. What's being communicated there was the thought of man in the state of sinful corruption taking and eating from the tree of life so that he would live forever in a corrupted, sinful fashion. That he would live forever in the presence of holy God in an unworthy fashion is so devastating and horrifying that it should not even be written or said. That is the weight of what that has there. A God continues, or we read in verse 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is a geographical separation, but more to the point, it is a spiritual separation. Man has been banished from the place of blessing. Sinful man may not approach the holy God. We see something similar, for example, in Numbers chapter 1, verses 51 and 53, where the Levites are stationed around the tabernacle so that they can prevent anyone from coming in an unworthy fashion to the tabernacle and losing their life. Uh, This is a measure to be sure of the judgment of the holy God, but it is also a measure of protection, both the cherubim and the Levite guards in Numbers chapter 1, of protecting man from the judgment. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Our passage this morning is verses 18 through 24. Now, there is a built-in, very simple, and very straightforward outline in our text. He's talking about two mountains, a mountain that won't save and a mountain that does save. These are two mountains that outline salvation history, even in God's dealing with the nation of Israel and then God dealing with his church. What the author is doing here is he's continuing a motif, a theme that has threaded through this entire magnificent epistle of the great contrast between the old and the new, between the imperfect and the perfect. 
between the temporary and the eternal, between the shadow and the substance, between the picture and the person, and more to the point in our text, between the law and the gospel. Beloved, follow along as I read our passage here, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touched the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, the outline of these seven verses are two mountains, the old covenant mountain of law and terror, and the new covenant mountain of grace and joy. Mount Sinai, unnamed here in the text, although understood from the Old Testament, and Mount Zion. And even the dimension of where the author doesn't explicitly name Mount Sinai, but does Mount Zion, that even begins to set the stage of the superiority and the greatness of the latter mountain. And beloved, as we are getting towards the end of this wonderful sermonic epistle written by this author, pastor, preacher to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century, this climactic section in some way summarizes the entire epistle. And this is one of the most vivid and colorful portions of the entire New Testament. What God lays out before us here is his unapproachable glory at Mount Sinai and his unparalleled grace at Mount Zion. And the intent here is that we would see the finish line more clearly. We remember the exhortation that began, that the chapter began with, to run the race with endurance. God wants you and I to understand and see the goal of your Christian pilgrimage more clearly. He wants it clarified. He wants it crystallized in your mind and in my mind. Now look at the text, look at that first little three-letter word, the little preposition for. What that tells us is that what is coming after the word for is going to be more basis, more foundation for the rapid-fire exhortations that the author had given in verses 12 through 17. Uh, When we see the word therefore, like at the beginning of verse 12, that tells us that what took place before is the basis of what comes after. When we see the word for, that tells us that what comes after is the basis for what has just been said. And what's fascinating is in these seven verses, verses 18 through 24, there's not a single exhortation. There's not a single command. 
Because bottom line is right knowing leads to right doing. And so that is why what he is going to tell us in this incredibly deep, rich reminder of God's holiness and a reminder of God's mercy is the foundation for you and I to run the race with endurance. For you and I to strengthen the weak and to straighten the crooked, to be strong and to beware, to be diligent and to be vigilant, to beware leaving any behind. Beware allowing sin to fester. Beware, as we were reminded, again, verses 12 through 17, of waiting until it's too late, like Esau did, when he, in a sense, sold his soul for a bowl of menudo, the way Pastor Alex Montoya would put it. Beloved, that is the intent here. First, let us look at the mountain, the old covenant mountain of law, and terror in verses 18 through 21. Again, this is the unapproachable glory of God at Mount Sinai, which was a place of awe and terror. And what we see here is consistent with the entire Bible, the entire Bible. The gospel message always begins not with man in his need, but with God in his glory. And the focus here in verses 18 through 21 is not the place of Mount Sinai it is the appearance of God in his terrifying holiness, power, and authority. And what we have is a reminder of the terror. It, it, it assumes this passage, this entire passage, assumes a foundational knowledge and understanding of Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5. You may be very familiar with the story. A friend, if you're here this morning and you're not, not familiar with this, I would encourage you to, again, read those chapters, Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5. So first we have a reminder of the terror. Again, look at verse 18, our text here in Hebrews 12. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched. Uh, there will be a great contrast. We see the word come. He says here first to this group of Jewish believers, you have not come to this mountain. In verse 22, he will say, but you have come to the latter mountain. You have not come to a mountain that may be touched. The text continues, and to a blazing fire. And in fact, that little couplet and two we'll see repeated eight times and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and it goes on <clears throat> this idea this blazing fire there's not a better more vivid picture of in one sense the law than the blazing fire that is represented here there is this awful energy of fire but very little revelation of light the result in the nation of Israel is that when they had the law of God laid out to them, when they had the greater holiness of God, that took what was iniquity and it became transgression. That took the iniquity, the perverted, distorted, corrupt nature of man's rebellion, where each and every one of us on this side of the fall are born sinners, born in rebellion, born with this twisted, distorted, corrupt nature in our heart to go against God. But when the word of God comes, when the revelation of God's holiness and his more detailed plan 
before man comes to us, then that inherent iniquity becomes a transgression, a willful, morally culpable crime against this incredibly holy God and to blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Again, this is the terrifying power of God. Uh, The passage continues, look at the beginning of verse 19, and to, the third of the ten and twos, and to the blast of a trumpet. Uh, The awful warning and alarm that comes with the trumpet. Uh, This blasting of a trumpet is familiar biblical apocalyptic terminology and imagery. Uh, Certainly in the Old Testament, as in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but also in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, in Matthew 24, in his Olivet Discourse, when he was talking about the end times, talks about this trumpet. Uh, Paul, when he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, also talks again about the trumpet that will be blown at the coming of Christ. Or we can think of the unfolding judgments of God in the book of Revelation. You have the seven seals that are broken open, and then the seventh seal breaks open and has the seven trumpets that sound God's judgment sequentially in the book of Revelation. That is the apocalyptic biblical imagery that is contained even here. Back in our verse, if you're still looking at uh, verse 19 in the middle, and to the sound of words, literally the voice of words, which was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. Now, I read from Exodus 19, verses 16 through 25 in our public reading of Scripture, one element of this interaction between holy God and sinful Israel, and I'm not picking on Israel because we're all sinful before the holy God, but part of the interaction was, and this is recorded in Deuteronomy 5:25, God spoke audibly to them. That's what's being described here. And in, in Deuteronomy 5:25, you will read that Israel said they didn't even they didn't even want to say to anything to God. They said to Moses, "We don't want to hear from this holy God anymore. You be the spokesman. You go hear from him and come back and tell us. Because if we hear his voice again, we will die." And you might think they're being a little sensationalistic or exaggeration. Well. They wouldn't necessarily die merely by hearing his voice, but they are getting the idea that the penalty for violating God and his rules, even the approach and even the touching of the mountain as we see here, is death. And just to think of what it meant to hear this holy God, we understand how they were shaking, so to speak, in their boots. But now as we would move from uh, the nation of Israel some 4,000 years or 3,500 years ago, to a Jewish Christian original audience of Hebrews, put yourself in their place. This is a group of people, new believers in the first century church. They are ethnically a people who were defined by a mountain, Mount Sinai, upon which they could not set foot. They couldn't even touch, upon which the law was given, upon which they heard the voice of God and trembled greatly. But they are on this side of the birth and life and death and crucifixion and resurrection and even ascension of Jesus Christ. They are on this side of the words of God that were spoken by God in human form by the man Jesus Christ. 
in John 6, verse 63, where he said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That is the salvation that they enjoy. That is the salvation that you and I enjoy. And so the implicit application the author of Hebrews is saying is, and you want to go back to Sinai? When Jesus Christ, your Savior, said the words that he has spoken to you are spirit and life. Don't go, application, don't go back to Sinai based upon your so-called good works. Rest on the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Rest in your faith in Christ. That is the reminder of the terror. But now he moves from that to the reason for the terror in verses 20 and 21. And bottom line, beloved, bottom line, dear friend, the more of God's holiness that is revealed, the more our unholiness becomes apparent and real. And to violate the command that God had there, it was death to touch, death to even approach. Look at verse 20. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Remember, the context here in Hebrews is the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant kept man at a distance from God. And what is also brought out here is that from the author's citing of those passages from Exodus and Deuteronomy is that God, was so, God is so holy and man was so sinful that if even a beast, a sheep or a cow or a dog or a chicken, and I'm sure that they were holy enough they didn't have cats. Sorry, I, I, I repent. I repent. If you're a cat lover, I forgive me. I did, did not have that in my notes, nor did I do that for service. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, but if any, any animal of any kind were to even touch the mountain, it would be killed. And to, again, accentuate and elevate God's holiness and the severity of the transgression, they couldn't take the animal and even cut its throat. They would have to kill it from a distance. That's why it would have to be stoned or, as we would also see, there was the option of it being speared back in the Exodus Deuteronomy passages. Again, God's holiness and man's sinfulness. Verse 21 in our passage continues, and so terrible was the sight. The Greek word <clears throat> translated here as terrible only appears three times in the New Testament. Here, the last appearance, we first saw it in the New Testament in Hebrews 10, verse 27, where there the author said, a certain terrifying, same word, expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. This is, beloved, this is, dear friend, the terrifying, furious fire of God's wrath. It's a personified fire that consumes and is filled with zeal. We see the word a second time in chapter 10, verse 31, where it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what the author means by that, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God still in your sin, to fall into the hands of the living God in an unmediated state. For those of us who are forgiven of our sins, where Jesus Christ paid the price on our behalf, to be sure, we still fear God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But his loving hands take us and draw him even to himself. But we continue 
verse 21 at the end, that Moses said, it was so terrible was the sight that Moses himself said, I am full of fear and trembling. Literally, I, Moses, I myself am exceedingly frightened and terrified. Uh, the same word, Greek word is used in the translation of Deuteronomy 9 verse 19 where you read that Moses said, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful. Or Stephen, the first Christian martyr who gave up his life for the faith in Acts chapter 7, cited Moses and Stephen said, Moses shook with fear, same word, and would not venture to look. Beloved, the point here is, Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Now, Moses did write that himself in Deuteronomy, but that is the word of God. So he was born along by the Holy Spirit. So God wrote that. And the point is, even the most humble man who ever lived was rightly terrified to approach God in his holiness. Even when God was telling Moses, yes, you come on to this mountain. Beloved, Dear friend, this is God's holiness and sacred majesty. It is a testimony that his unmediated holiness is terrifying and consuming. His blazing fire that we read of before consumes the unmediated. But his blazing fire, his holy fire, refines the mediated. As we saw in uh, chapter 10, verse 27, it consumes and burns up his adversaries, and it consumes and burns up your dross, my dross. It takes the wood, hay, and stubble of the distractions, perhaps even the non-sinful things, but the distracting things. His holiness burns those away so that it refines the spiritual, metaphorically speaking, gold and jewels of our faith in the Lord. You see, Moses, we know, saw God, saw an appearance of God in the fire that burned in Exodus chapter 3. But, and the bush was burning, but there was still life in the bush. There was no leaf that withered. And how could that be? How could it be that the tongues of flame fell upon the heads of the believers on the day of Pentecost, yet there was no harm? How could that be? That is, bottom line, the difference between meeting God in an unmediated state and meeting God in a mediated state with our Savior standing in the gap with his blood-stained hands. Beloved, dear friend, the same God who appeared at Sinai in a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind is the same God who received children to himself, the man Jesus Christ, God in human form, received children to himself and blessed them. It's the same God who touched the leper. The leper, the world would say, stay away. Well, the world, even in the old, under the old covenant, the leper would have to stay away and cry out, unclean, unclean. But Jesus touched him and said he was cleansed. It's the same God who appeared in the blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, that forgave assassins, tax collectors, and prostitutes. This is the mercy of God. I heard it said once that there's not a drop of grace in the law. Untrue. Absolutely untrue. There is grace in the law, and there is law in grace. 
Paul, for example, told the Galatians, God tells you and me in Galatians 4 that the law is our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. So there is a measure of grace in the law. And to be sure, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, apart from the law. The law has no contribution to our salvation except in that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law. He satisfied God's holy requirements. The law was given at Sinai. The law was fulfilled at Zion. So there is law in grace. And Jesus Christ obeyed the letter of the law, and he obeyed the spirit of the law. He fulfilled the law in its external reality, and he fulfilled the law in its internal urgency. He perfectly obeyed and perfectly fulfilled the law with his actions and with his heart. And that takes us from the first mountain, the old covenant mountain of law and terror, to the second mountain in verses 22 to 24, the new covenant mountain of grace and joy. We move from the unapproachable glory of God at Sinai to the unparalleled grace of God at Zion. From the awful terror of Sinai that gives way to the radical mercy of Zion. From doom and dread to life and joy. You see, because Sinai represents the giving of the law, Zion represents the coming of the gospel, the coming of the good news. And what we see in these three verses are Zion's city, Zion's citizens, and Zion's cleansing. First, Zion's city. You see, Sinai was, from a geographic standpoint, was uninhabitable. It was a windswept mountain. You couldn't touch it or even approach it. Zion, what we see here in our passage, is a hospitable city. It's populated by saints and angels, God himself. This is like peace after the storm, like the song, one of the words that we sang earlier, the calm picture of the dwelling place of God. Look at verse 22. But you, just the contrast, the gap, the the infinite, eternal, spiritual transition and separation don't even begin to be fully captured by that word but but you have come to mount zion and it uses the greek grammar here that says you have come so have have you come to mount zion well yes and no there's an already aspect of that which we will see here and to be sure there is a not yet portion this continues the already not yet tension throughout the entire New Testament. And the future aspect of it, the author uses this past tense, perfect tense, as our Greek professor would teach us, to basically describe a certain and promised reality. He speaks even though it hasn't yet fully been consummated as though it's already taken place. You see, uh, again, expanding a little bit on the kind of geographical dimension, Mount Sinai uh, looks maybe something like Picacho Peak. If you've climbed Picacho, it's a great mountain to climb, but you wouldn't want to live up there. There's nothing inhabitable about it. But it is a pretty good-sized mountain. Mount Zion, uh, geographically speaking, uh, it's called Mount, but it, it's not even a hill. It's just like a little bump. It's a, a little tiny bump in the land. But it is one of the, quote, mountains. is one of the hills upon which Jerusalem was built. It was captured by King David. We're 
first introduced to the people group, the Jebusites, back in Genesis chapter 14 and forward. And God tells us in 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7 that King David captured it. This is what it says. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And even that I love when we think of this little bump, this little hill compared to a pretty significant Mount Sinai. This flows perfectly well with the fact that God does not choose the many and the mighty. He chooses the few and the not mighty to bring out his glory, to bring out it's the purpose of God and the will of God. This is not a book written by mere men. This is a book written by God through men that he would receive the glory. And beloved, Zion here represents our final pardon and blessing. That's why the Apostle John records part of his vision of the risen Jesus Christ as the risen lamb and the coming conquering lion. Revelation 14, 1, John says, I looked and behold the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. That is the Mount Zion to which you have already come. The passage continues, verse 22, and to the city of the living God. This is the same city of God that Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs looked towards, that the author brought out for us back in chapter 11, verse 11 and verse 16. It's a city of brilliance and radiance. It's a gloriously accessible eternal city because it's a city of promise and peace. The city of the living God, the text continues, the heavenly Jerusalem. Beloved, even as Jerusalem was the capital of Israel and is the capital of Israel, so also the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, is the capital of the kingdom of God. That's why Paul told the Galatian church, Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Beloved, dear friend, the Bible begins in a garden. The Bible, the book of Revelation, ends in a city, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion. Revelation 21, verse 2, John records He says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what you and I in Christ have waiting for us. And it's not just something we look towards, it's something we live now. Because, beloved, God doesn't want you or me to wallow in the gutter of the world. He wants you and I to lift our minds to heaven, to the Jerusalem above, to the Zion above, to our true home, to our true hope. Ligon Duncan had this great statement around this. He said, quote, Worldliness sells you the bill that it can provide satisfaction, but then it leaves you in the bottom of that dark hole of a sinking ship. It kills you. It robs you of real joy, whereas the one whose citizenship is in heaven has solid joys and lasting treasures, watch this, that none but Zion's children know. 
Beloved, that is what you and I have. The sandcastles of this world, we must not allow them to distract us from our heavenly city because the joys and the pleasures of this world, like Esau who sold his soul for a mess of meat in this passing, dying world, the joys of heaven, are, the pleasures of heaven are eternal, abundant, and never fading. So, That's Zion's city. We have Zion's citizens as we continue on. This describes your eternal citizenship, our eternal worship. And what we have here is a list of inhabitants, a list of citizens of this heavenly Zion. And what a company that you and I are going towards. It begins with, look at verse 22 at the end, and to myriads of angels. These are angels shining in the glory of God. This reminds us, if you've been here through Hebrews, or if you know Hebrews, that the author spent an inordinate amount of time back at the beginning, from chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 18, 30 verses, no, excuse me, 29 verses, out of a total of 303 verses in the entire epistle, talking about angels. Uh, Angels are significant. John, also in part of his heavenly vision, in Revelation 5, 11, uses similar language to this myriads of angels that we see here. Revelation 5, 11, John wrote, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of So by virtue of the amount of ink the author of Hebrews spent, by virtue of this vision of John, angels are significant. But, beloved, dear friend, no angel has ever been invited to sit at the right hand of Jesus. As Paul tells us in Ephesians, we are, as part of this already not yet dynamic, already seated with him. More to the point of the context here, of what the author brings out for us. The blood of Jesus was not shed for the cherubim. It was not shed for the Savior's blood was not shed for the seraphim or the four living creatures in Revelation. But if you're in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, his sinless blood was shed on your behalf. The list, the registry continues and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, who are registered for the census of heaven. The same kind of language and thinking that Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, when the seven disciples came back and were talking about how there were signs and wonders and people were listening and repenting, Jesus says, well, don't rejoice, and and demons were being cast out. Don't rejoice in that. Rather, rejoice your names are recorded in heaven. Or Revelation 21, giving a picture of the eternal steady state of heaven in its forever and ever glories those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life are those citizens of heaven those citizens of zion and even when he talks about the general assembly and church of the firstborn the greek literally says to church of firstborn to the church of the firstborn the idea is you know that's it's it's the word ecclesia um and 
we understand that that Greek word ecclesia translated as church, the majority of time is used in the New Testament to talk about the local church. We understand that the local church, this beloved Santan Bible church, we are a reflection of, a testimony to, a manifestation of the universal church. What the author here is doing is he's expanding even beyond that from the local church to the universal church, which is all believers from the day of Pentecost forward to the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. This is the eternal and universal assembly of God's children, the whole family of God, and you and I are part of it. The text continues, look again in verse 23, and to God judge of all. Just a side note, in verses 22 to 24, there's not a single article, uh, what we say the in English, there's not a single article in the entire three verses except from a fascinating standpoint when he talks about Abel at the end and the Abel. So this literally says, and to God, judge of all. And the author uses that to bring out the quality and the intensity of, in this case, judge, firstborn, church, ecclesia, assemblia. He's bringing home the reality in a vivid way. But when we think of God as judge of all, we understand that judges do condemn. Judges do mete out punishment. They sentence people. But judges also examine, and they pronounce innocence. That's why, for example, in James chapter 4, verse 12, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, there's one lawgiver and judge, watch this, the one who is able to save and the one who is able to destroy. So God's ministry as judge is to destroy the unmediated and to save the mediated, to judge and destroy those who die in their sin and to save and rescue and redeem and glorify those who die in Christ. And beloved, dear friend, the day of judgment will be a day of unmitigated horror for the unmediated, but it will be a day of unmitigated glory for the mediated. In Christ, you and I come unafraid, pardoned and cleansed to God who is judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. The text continues and finishes verse 22. They've made perfect in the sense they're already with God in heaven. He calls them the spirits because they are with Christ, but they've not yet been united with their resurrected bodies. Their spirits rest in perfect fulfillment while they await the resurrection of their physical bodies. And then finally, at the beginning of verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the mediator, the one who is standing in the gap. This is not by Sinai's law, but by Zion's sacrifice. This is the same dynamic where Jesus himself said the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You see, a a mediator doesn't just represent one party. A mediator represents both parties. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, had these choice words on this dynamic. He said... Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. He's the middle person that goes between both 
parties, God and man, to bring them together in this covenant and to keep them together, to plead with God for us and to plead with us for God and at length to bring God and his people together in heaven. And there is one mediator between man and God. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God, one mediator also between God and man. And this is Christ Jesus. His atoning work for you is done, but his advocating work for you continues on and on, even right now as I preach. And I love the fact that Hebrews is something of a glimpse into apostolic preaching that's filled with scripture and exalts Christ. And the application to the original audience and to me is don't love the picture, love the person. Don't go back. It's great when you're engaged, but when you're married, don't go back to the engagement. Stay in the marriage. Stay with Christ. Don't go back to your old ways. So Zion City, Zion citizens, finally Zion's cleansing at the end of verse 24. There is cleansing, forgiveness, and peace. And what the author does here at the very end of the passage is he goes back to the measureless power of the blood of Christ and to the sprinkled blood, the final and to, the tenth, and to the sprinkled blood. Back to the river of blood flowing through the pages of Scripture. Why? Why all the blood? Because without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Chapter 9, verse 22. There's a great and terrible price paid for your salvation, for my salvation. Heaven's goods must be purchased with heaven's coin. And namely, beloved, namely, dear friend, the blood of Jesus is the cleansing agent that frees us in Christ from the guilt of sin and cleanses us from the pollution of sin. That's why Paul, describing Jesus in the opening of his letter to the church in Rome, Romans 1, 5, says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, by his blood. And Finally, in our text, this is a very articulate blood. It is a speaking blood. Look at the end of verse 24. Which, the blood of Jesus, speaks better than the blood of Abel. Uh, That word better, the twelfth and final appearance in this whole book. Again, bringing out the infinite superiority of Christ, of the new versus the old. This is a final appearance, namely that The blood of Jesus, the Savior blood, speaks better than the martyr blood of Abel. And what does the martyr blood of Abel say? Genesis 4.10, God told Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see, Abel's martyr blood cries vengeance. Jesus' Savior blood cries forgiveness. Jesus' blood promises pardon and cleansing. And it still speaks. Look, it's present tense. It's still speaking today. This was written some 30 years after Jesus' blood was shed. It was still speaking then. Now, 2,000 years later, it still speaks to us. And what is the message of this articulate speaking blood? 
It's words that don't merely ring in the ears, like I'm sure the voice of God did at Sinai. These are words that reverberate in the heart of God's children. This is the leper again coming to Jesus. If you're willing, Lord, you can make me clean. And Jesus, Matthew 8 tells us, stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. You see, this better blood of the better covenant speaks to you and to me who, like Cain, are blood guilty sinners and, like the leper, are iniquity stained transgressors. But we are forgiven and we are cleansed. You see, Sinai, in conclusion, represents the knowledge of sin, Zion represents the forgiveness of sin. Sinai testifies and screams condemnation. Zion testifies and screams salvation. The bad news is at Sinai. The good news is at Zion. The mount of God's law and the mount of God's grace. And what it means is God is now approachable. And you don't need to climb heavenly steps to seek him. He's immediately accessible right here and right now. The old mount was one that you are forbidden to approach. This is the mount that God himself bids you to come, come freely. And we know from chapter 10, verse 18, we do that, not now with fear and trembling, but with boldness and confidence in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That's what we remember <clears throat> as we now approach the communion table. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. Thank you again, Lord God, for a reminder of your terrible holiness, your awesome holiness, and, and how sinful we are in our rebellion, and how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. How beautiful is the salvation that you washed over us, the perfect cleanliness, the white garments that all of us in Christ here even Figuratively speaking, even now as we approach the communion table to celebrate and to remember and in even one sense mourn over your blood that was shed, that we approach it with these figurative white robes that were purchased by your sacrifice on our behalf. Lord God, help us to glorify you in all that we do, beginning now with this thing, with this worship, corporate and individual of the Lord's table. It's in your name. For, and in your glory that we do this and that we pray. Amen.